Blog Talk Radio. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, founder of Alzheimer's Speaks Resource website, blog, and radio. My passion is to educate the world about Alzheimer's disease and dementia and memory loss, and that came to me through my 30-year journey with my mother's dementia. For those of you that are new to the show, I just want to give you a brief introduction to our radio show here. Our goal is to give voice to those afflicted with memory loss as well as their care partners, both family and professionals, and empower everyone to live purpose-filled lives. We want to raise awareness, give hope, and share the real everyday life stories of living with Alzheimer's disease. Our channel expert, who actually has the disease, Rick Phelps, I never know if he'll be able to join us or not, but if he is able, I will definitely pull Rick into the show. For those of you that don't know Rick, he was diagnosed with early onset in June of 2010, and he's the founder of Memory People on Facebook, which is a closed group, and it's just a wonderful support group, again, for people with early memory loss, family and professional care partners, as well as advocates for the disease. On our homepage, you can find information to contact either Rick or I if you have any questions or would just like to reach out and chat. During our session today, um, you can join us, and we would love to have your questions or comments. If you're listening by the Internet, you can always use your chat box and go ahead and type in a question or comment, and I will pull that in um, as the, uh, the conversation progresses. Or if you're listening by phone or you want to call in live, that number is 714-364-4757. Again, that's 714-364-4757. And all you have to do is push 1. You will get into my queue. And again, I will pull you into the conversation. Today our guest is... Dr. John C. Morris. And Dr. Morris is, <clears throat> excuse me, is a Harvey A. and Doris May Hacker Friedman Distinguished Professor of Neurology. He's a professor of pathology and immunology, professor of physical therapy, professor of occupational therapy, the director of the Charles F. and Joanne Knight Alzheimer's Disease Research Center, Memory and Aging Project at Washington University School of Medicine. Dr. Morris earned his medical degree from the University of Rochester School of Medicine and Dentistry in Rochester, New York. He completed residencies in internal medicine at Akron General Medical Center and in the neurology, um, excuse me, in neurology at uh, Cleveland Metropolitan General Hospital, both in Ohio and his postdoctoral fellowship in neuropharmacology at Washington University School of Medicine. His research um, interests include healthy aging and Alzheimer's, dementia, um, and also biomarkers for Alzheimer's disease. And so he's worked quite a bit with trials on investigational drugs for the treatment of Alzheimer's and dementia. Dr. Morris has also authored or co-authored four books in more than 375 published articles from the American Academy of Neurology and the American (coughs) Neurological Association. 
He serves on the editorial board for uh, the Annals of Neurology and, and several others. Um, he has many, many um, distinguished awards that he has won, and I'm not going to cover all of them, but I'm just thrilled to death to have you with us today. How are you doing, Dr. Morris? Fine, and it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for uh, inviting me. Well, great. We're excited to have you here because we really want to learn in plain, simple language about biomarkers, and we hear you're the guy to be able to explain it to us. Um, but before we kind of go down that path, can you tell um, myself and the audience, you know, do you have um, a personal um, attachment or, uh, you know, with dementia at all? Has it, you know, hit you on a personal level from family or friends? Well, uh, certainly I've um, uh, been fortunate in my family to have a, a number of my relatives live a very long lives into their 80s and 90s. Uh, and because the number one risk factor for developing uh, Alzheimer dementia is getting older, uh, uh, several of those uh, individuals uh, have become affected with uh, with Alzheimer dementia. So uh, it uh, certainly does uh, aff uh, affect my family members who are uh, uh, older, uh, but also I have been uh, uh, caring for uh, people with dementia and their families for uh, well over 25 years, and so uh, know know it not only from a personal level, but uh, from a, a patient care standpoint. And uh, any of uh, the people who are uh, listening to this who have personal experience with Alzheimer's dementia uh, know that it is a uh, just a devastating uh, illness, uh, certainly for the affected individual but uh, perhaps in, in many cases even more so for the family members. So uh, it's, a, it's a cruel uh, illness. It, it robs us of our uh, human qualities, uh, and it uh, is very expensive to, uh, to care for. It uh, takes a terrible toll on family caregivers, as you yourself uh, have experienced, uh, and it, it simply is going to... Uh, uh, only get uh, uh, more prevalent, more frequent as our population continues to age. So I'm very pleased that you're uh, having this uh, this program because we need to get the the word out about Alzheimer's disease and the dementia it causes, and we need to um, uh, redouble uh, our efforts to try to um, to develop truly effective therapies. Uh, they're lacking. At present, we don't have effective, truly effective therapies, uh, and, but we must uh, develop them. Otherwise, I'm afraid as uh, society continues to age that uh, this illness will overwhelm our, uh, our health care resources. I, I definitely agree with you there, and I think we need uh, therapies both in the medical sense and in the social sense. Um, is, is my personal belief on that one because I think they just work so hand-in-hand hand together. Um, with that, why don't you explain to us exactly what are biomarkers? We hear a lot of talk about that, but I, I don't think people really understand the, you know, the intricacy of, of them themselves and the impact that they can have on, our, on all of our lives in the future here. 
Sure. Well, let me uh, let me try to uh, uh, illustrate or, or give a characterization of what we mean by biomarkers. So, bio means uh, during life, uh, and a marker is a uh, uh, some sort of indicator of a disease process. So, uh, in Alzheimer's disease, we've known for over 100 years that the disease process occurs primarily in the brain tissue. It's a disorder of the brain. And uh, we know that the two consistent brain lesions, brain changes that occur, are things called, one, senile plaques, or, or more recently, amyloid plaques, and second, neurofibrillary tangles. These are very small lesions, can only be uh, visualized by using a microscope, uh, but they characterize Alzheimer's disease. So uh, we have not until recently been able to uh, look at those lesions, if you will, in living people uh, or uh, understand the, uh, the proteins and molecules that constitute these plaques and these tangles in living people. That's why uh, people, uh, it, it's often said that you don't know for certain whether somebody has uh, Alzheimer's disease unless they die and come to autopsy and the brain is examined under the microscope and then you can see the plaques and the tangles and you can confirm the diagnosis. Well, that has, has been the situation for almost 100 years, but in the past 10 or 15 years, the the science of Alzheimer's disease has uh, developed quite rapidly so that we can tell in living people whether they have these, these brain changes that uh, ultimately are represented by the plaques and the tangles. We can, we can discern uh, whether uh, those lesions are present in the brains of, of living people and hence uh, uh, be more confident that uh, that the person does indeed have Alzheimer's disease without having to wait until uh, an autopsy is performed. What we're what we're essentially saying is we're uh, as these biomarkers are developed and there is a development process, we are moving uh, towards a test or uh, perhaps a combination of tests. To, uh, using these biomarkers to let us know that a, a certain individual does or does not have these brain changes of Alzheimer's disease. Okay, wonderful. Well, that was easy to understand, so I appreciate you um, stating it the way you did. One of our callers um, does have a question, so if you don't mind, I'm going to get a little off track um, because maybe you're planning on covering this later, but we'll go ahead and ask. She was wondering about, and I'm not familiar with this, adult Etolog, E-T-O-L-O-G. I'm afraid I don't, I'm not familiar. Okay, and let me see. Susan uh, said she's got early Alzheimer's and she's got a variant called PCA. And and I had not heard about that, but it's E-T-O-L-O-G is what she's asking about. And I had not heard that. Is that, are you E-T... I'm sorry. Well, well, I, I do know what uh, PCA stands for. That mm-hmm. that's an abbreviation for posterior cortical atrophy. Atrophy meaning shrinkage, cort- cortical meaning a, a brain region, 
and posterior, meaning the back part of the brain. So we mentioned that Alzheimer's disease is, um, is a brain disorder. Uh, most often it, uh, it affects the brain regions that are associated uh, or have the function that serves our mental abilities, things such as memory and attention and insight and reasoning or problem solving and language and personality. So that's why uh, we're able to uh, to make the diagnosis in someone who who has those brain functions that are failing. They develop memory loss or personality change or word finding difficulty, and so we can make the diagnosis uh, in uh, uh, Alzheimer's disease dementia when those brain functions are impaired or, or being lost. But occasionally, Alzheimer's disease, and those brain regions uh, tend to be in the more uh, anterior, uh, frontal lobe, temporal lobe, parietal lobe regions of the brain. Occasionally, for reasons that aren't understood, uh, Alzheimer's disease can affect the more posterior or back portions of the brain, and those regions tend to uh, have as uh, to uh, uh, function as interpreting visual stimuli, things that uh, the eye uh, receives as, as light signals, and then they're transmitted to this back region of the brain, and in those light signals are interpreted. And so people who have posterior cortical atrophy uh, may have Alzheimer's disease that has, for some reason yet to be determined, a predilection for this, uh, this region of the brain, and they may not have so much of memory or uh, attentional or personality change. They may have difficulty interpreting uh, visual images. One, one uh, rare uh, manifestation of that is they may not be able to recognize faces of people they know well. The person uh, uh, is not known to them if they were looking at the face, and, but if the person were to speak, then they uh, could recognize the sound and interpret it in that way. So posterior cortical atrophy is a, a, an atypical form of, of Alzheimer's disease. There are some other brain disorders that can uh, can cause that also, so not everyone with posterior cortical atrophy has, has it due to Alzheimer's disease, but occasionally Alzheimer's disease presents in that way. That's, a, as I said, an unusual form of it. Okay. <clears throat> Susan had said here that she's on a on a drug trial, so I just typed into her asking her if maybe that was the name of the drug okay. um, or the trial. So I'll see if she answers us later. But um, so that was very that was very helpful there. Can you tell us um, in terms of biomarkers right now? Um, are they being used in clinical trials, and if so, how and how common are they in terms of usage? Sure. So let let, let me describe them a, a little bit and, and tell you why uh, we think that uh, they can be useful in, uh, in Alzheimer research, uh, including the experimental studies of, of drugs uh, that may uh, treat Alzheimer's disease. And, and eventually, and probably in not the too distant future, I think they will be used not only in research but also in, uh, in clinical practice. So there are basically, uh, presently, right now, uh, two major types of uh, Alzheimer biomarkers. 
the first type are, are labeled molecular biomarkers, and the reason they're labeled as molecular is because they uh, are indicators of the abnormal molecules or proteins that make up the plaques and the tangles. So the molecule that is abnormal in, uh, in, the, in the plaque is called amyloid beta, and the molecule that is abnormal in the tangle is called tau. Now, these are normal molecules, proteins. We, we all have them, but for some reason in Alzheimer's disease, they become uh, dysregulated. They don't serve their normal function. They tend to aggregate or clump together, and then they get deposited abnormally in the brain tissue as the plaque and the tangle. Well, molecular biomarkers can detect these abnormal aggregates of these particular proteins, amyloid and tau. So those are two types of biomarkers, uh, two, uh, two molecular biomarkers. We have uh, basically now two ways to evaluate them. One is by examining the cerebral spinal fluid. The uh, spinal fluid, of course, is, is uh, surrounding the spinal cord, but also it is produced in and surrounds the brain. It, and, and anything that goes wrong in the brain can be evaluated by uh, examining the spinal fluid. So, for example, uh, individuals who get an infection called meningitis, which uh, often is a bacterial infection of the brain's uh, uh, tissue surrounding, uh, we can uh, do a spinal tap to collect the spinal fluid and find in that spinal fluid uh, signs of inflammation as well as signs of the bacteria that are surrounding the brain because it's produced in the brain. Well, a spinal fluid analysis uh, of, uh, of amyloid and tau now is possible and for, uh, we can determine the proper levels of amyloid and tau in the spinal fluid. And in Alzheimer's disease, they become abnormal. So we can look at abnormal levels of tau or abnormal levels of amyloid beta or both and determine that the, the person has a, has a problem with those molecules uh, that are forming the plaques and the tangles. So that's that's one molecular uh, bio, uh, biomarker assay of those two proteins. Another way to assess the, the amyloid beta protein is there are now special uh, tracers uh, that can be injected into a person's vein. It gets to the heart. It's sent out from the heart through the arteries up to the brain. It crosses into the brain tissue. And the tracer is a, is a is specially developed uh, dye that if it uh, encounters an amyloid plaque uh, deposit in the brain, it will bind to it with a, a very great affinity and stay there for a while because it's attracted to the amyloid plaque and it's designed in such a way that it can give off a, a radial signal that a uh, imaging uh, machine called a PET scanner can detect. So we can detect in, in people if they have amyloid deposits, amyloid plaques in their brain 
through this imaging tracer, tracer and a PET scanner, uh, we can uh, see how much of that amyloid they have. So those, those are the two ways we detect the abnormal uh, molecular or protein aggregations of amyloid beta and tau. We can uh, uh, assay the spinal fluid, or we can do an amyloid tracer study with a PET scanner. Now, the amyloid plaques and the, and the neurofibrillary tangles, the tau abnormality, are, are the recognizable brain lesions of Alzheimer's disease. Almost certainly, they're not the only uh, thing uh, that uh, only uh, abnormalities that are ongoing in Alzheimer's disease. There probably are many other processes. And together, all these abnormal processes lead to the the critical feature of Alzheimer's disease, which is brain cells, neurons, nerve cells, uh, stop working well and eventually die. So that's, that comes back to that uh, term uh, atrophy that we discussed earlier. The brain shrinks, becomes atrophic, because brain nerve cells are dying. That's, mm -hmm. what, the, uh, that's what the Alzheimer process ultimately results in. So we can look at indications of not necessarily the abnormal molecules that cause brain cells to die, but we can look at the fact that brain cells aren't working well or, in fact, are gone by, by downstream biomarkers. So, for example, we can do another imaging study called a magnetic resonance image that quantitates how much brain tissue is present, and if it's not... Uh, uh, up to normal uh, standards, we can say there's atrophy in, in areas, and we know the areas of the brain that are most prone to becoming uh, shrunken or atrophic. Uh, one of the regions is called the hippocampus, so we can do an MRI scan and find small or uh, reduced levels or volumes of the hippocampus, and that would be a a downstream marker, a biomarker of Alzheimer's disease. Now, in this case, it, the downstream marker doesn't necessarily tell us that the reason that the hippocampus is, is atrophic or has reduced volume is because of the molecular abnormality of Alzheimer's disease. Perhaps something else happened to cause hippocampal uh, shrinkage. So these downstream markers are uh, are um, more widely available than the spinal fluid test or the PET tracer, but they're not as specific for the disease because they don't tell us that the the reason the, the brain is shrinking is, is necessarily due to Alzheimer's, but they're much more widely available. So those are the, the two types of biomarkers we have now. It's important, uh, we think, and, uh, uh, and uh, my colleagues and, and I uh, uh, recently uh, published a, a, a special issue in the neurobiology of aging that is addressing why we think we should incorporate these Alzheimer biomarkers in clinical trials of experimental drugs uh, to try to treat Alzheimer's disease. Uh, uh, Dr. Dennis uh, Selko from um, Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston and Harvard Medical School and myself uh, here at uh, Washington University in St. Louis were the, uh, were the guest editors for this uh, special issue, which was published in, in uh, December 2011 in Neurobiology of Aging. 
And the reason we think that biomarkers should be increasingly used in clinical trials is, uh, is representing what I have to say at present is, a, is an unsatisfactory situation, which is we don't have any effective therapies for Alzheimer's disease. And in fact, all the drugs that we've tried in the past 10 years to see if they will benefit people with Alzheimer's dementia have all failed to show any benefit. They've all failed. Now, why is that? Well, one reason is, potential, is that uh, people who sign up to participate in these clinical trials, people with dementia, perhaps they've been misdiagnosed. Perhaps they don't have Alzheimer's disease as the cause of their, as their, uh, their dementia. So they would be entered into the trial assuming they have Alzheimer's disease, assuming they have these molecular changes in amyloid or tau, and the drugs that they're being administered are meant to address uh, amyloid pathology or tau pathology, but they won't respond because they never had that specific pathology uh, at any time. They had dementia for, for some other reason. So biomarkers would uh, immediately help in clinical trials by ensuring that only people who were enrolled in the trial and given a drug that is meant to treat amyloid or meant to treat uh, tau abnormalities, be certain that the people who are in the trial have those abnormalities so that uh, we're not uh, 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 being confused uh, uh, with people who, who uh, are apparent, uh, uh, diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease but, in fact, do not have that disorder. Then the other reason... I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, so in order to, to get these biomarkers, so if someone was in a clinical trial and this was part of it, then they would need a spinal tap. Is that correct? Spinal tap or potentially this tracer with uh, with the uh, PET scanner. Okay, okay. Because I, I know the, the um, spinal taps, you know, can be dangerous because um, my daughter ended up having spinal meningitis when she was 10 months old and it was one of those. You know, it was a, it was a big decision. I mean, in in her case, I mean, we didn't have a choice. We had to take it because it was a life or death situation. And I look at Alzheimer's disease as not being that life or death situation. And maybe it's changed because this was you know over 20 years ago. Um, and and is it still a, a risky um, procedure? Well, I'm going to uh, at the um, at the uh, great risk of contradicting. My host, I'm going to uh, challenge you a little bit about the risk. I can tell you my personal experience. When I was three years old, uh, I developed uh, polio. Fortunately, okay. now that's an illness that we don't have to contend with in, in much of the developed world. But uh, at that time, um, I had polio, and, the re and that's another uh, infection of, mm -hmm. of the nervous system. And the way to diagnose it, uh, is uh, through analysis of the spinal fluid. Mm -hmm. And at three years old, I remember very, very vividly uh, uh, in a uh, taken away from my parents to an examination room with some strange doctors and healthcare professionals and forced to sit in a position where my back was rounded and I couldn't move and I was screaming and trying to get away and they were trying to do a spinal tap and I remember it hurt, mm -hmm. and the reason it hurt was because the uh, spinal needle wasn't being uh, directed at the right 
uh, space because I was a moving target trying to mm-hmm. get away. <laughs> but uh, but in fact, done properly, I uh, there, here's my uh, contradiction. Done okay. properly, a spinal tap is no more painful, perhaps even less painful than getting a blood draw, a venipuncture. The reason we say that is because we the only pain that that occurs in a in an appropriately done spinal fluid is when the needle goes through the skin just like in a in a blood draw and in the spinal uh, fluid procedure we often numb up that skin with uh, novocaine something the dentist uh, might use so there uh, after the needle passes through the skin it enters into the space around the spinal column it doesn't go into bone, it doesn't go into nerve, it doesn't go into spinal cord, and there is absolutely no discomfort. And it is not risky uh, okay. if if it's done properly. The only risk, uh, if we, we do this a, a great deal, the only risk is, um, or the, 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 the most common risk is that after the needle is withdrawn, if for some reason the spinal fluid continues to a leak out of the uh, opening that the spinal needle uh, put, then the person can have a headache when they uh, when they stand up. We call this a post-spinal tap headache. Uh, that uh, typically occurs in fewer than 5% of people who have a spinal tap, and if it were to persist, it can be easily uh, treated by uh, uh, plugging that uh, that hole in the in the spinal membranes with uh, with a, a blood clot, if you will. So it's it really is not risky, and okay. I would I would uh, uh, suggest to you that there are hundreds of thousands of women who have a spinal tap every day. Matter of fact, they request it. These are oh, women for pregnancy, for- sure are undergoing childbirth, right? And yep. uh, they want an epidural, which is essentially a spinal tap to help the alleviate the the labor discomfort. And so uh, lots of people have spinal taps every day without any consequences whatsoever. Well, that's interesting because, you know, when we were in the midst of this, and again, it was a long time ago, um, you know, the way it was told to us was very serious. And, and you know, they she was at a point where it was a 50-50 chance, if that. Um, of survival, and um, the disease had hit her pretty hard. And so, and the way it was described to us was very, very scary. And I'm like, well, you know, we don't really have a choice here. <laughs> you know, because right. if, we, if we don't do it, you know, there's going to be an issue. And I guess I never oh. I never looked at it, but, yeah, women do have that done all the time or when people go All the time, and they get up and move around, and they're not paralyzed or anything. I mean, it, it's it's a very common procedure, and... I, again, now I'm saying done properly. If a uh-huh. spinal needle goes someplace it shouldn't because of inexperience, or in my case when I was three because I was moving around all over the place, then then uh, then you can get uh, pain and discomfort. But done properly, it's a it's a very straightforward and uh, I won't say painless, but uh-huh. very it's a lot, it, uh, it's uh, about equal to getting your blood 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 drawn. Yeah. Well, I'm glad I'm glad I brought that up because I guess it was just my emotional attachment to those words and that time in my life that was scary, and I just remember how serious the situation was, and then I just went and applied it to to everything. And so I'm really glad that you clarified for me. Um, that's that's good because I, you know, you hate to get people into a in a, into a high risk situation, and now it's 
I mean, it's very, like you said, it's extremely common um, right. for that to be part of it. And um, and I know that it didn't take very long, you know, for the process uh, to be. And if it can if it can help speed up things and push things forward in terms of research, that just makes a ton of sense. Right. Um, so, so I just I just that. want to close uh, why I think bio why my colleagues and I think biomarkers are important for clinical trials. Uh, I mentioned one in in selecting the patients to be sure they have the illness, uh, and the second is that um, these drugs often target these abnormal proteins, amyloid in particular, and the biomarkers can tell us much more quickly. Uh, whether the drug is having the expected effect on the amyloid, whether it's uh, sort of uh, restoring it to its proper balance rather than its abnormal balance. So we don't have to do uh, long studies with with lots and lots of people to to see if there's any benefit. We can see right away whether the drug is, is in essence, whether it's effectively engaging the target, the abnormal amyloid. So this uh, this special issue was supported by the Alliance for Aging Research, and I just wanted to uh, recommend it if there are any professionals uh, uh, listening to your program that it was uh, in the Neurobiology of Aging in December 2011. Wonderful. Um, so... Right now, are there any clinical trials that are using the biomarkers, or is this just truly you're trying to get this launched? And nope, nope. They're being incorporated increasingly into clinical trials, and, and many of the trial designs now are a two-phase design. So say you have a, what you think is an anti-amyloid uh, drug, uh, you would use biomarkers, either the imaging with PET or the spinal fluid or both, to be certain that a person has an abnormal level of amyloid. You'd give the drug, and you'd see if the drug uh, uh, tends to uh, improve that abnormal amyloid. So for an example of amyloid uh, tracers with the PET scan, I said the tracer is retained in the brain if there's a lot of amyloid, so you'd start the person on the drug and Hopefully, over a period of three or six or 12 months, you'd see that the, uh, because of the drug, that the amyloid burden, the amount of the tracer that's retained, is less and less and less. So it looks like it's working on the on the abnormal mo- molecules, um, abnormal proteins. Then, if it if the drug does show that it affects the the pathology of the disease, the brain lesion. Then you can do a study to see, does it benefit the patient? It's one thing to to get rid of the amyloid plaques. The second thing is, is that going to help stabilize the patient so they don't continue to decline or, or potentially even improve? So that, But you wouldn't... You could only do that second phase with the assurance that the drug is, is actually having the effect you expected for it. Sure. Well, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Now, to find out about trials, is there a place that you would recommend people to to look? Um, sure, there there are several websites. I'll, I'll give uh, I'll give two. One is the uh, the National Institutes of Health has a website called Clinical Trials, all one word. dot gov. So uh, that uh, would uh, identify uh, uh, Alzheimer drugs, uh, potential Alzheimer drugs that are in trial. And the other is that of the National Alzheimer Association. I uh, think the website there is www.alz.org. Okay. 
Yep, that's so, correct. So yeah. both of those uh, would, uh, uh, and there are other websites, but both of those would uh, would uh, monitor what trials are currently underway. Okay, and I think Medify has uh, uh, has trials listed on their site as well. I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure there are many others. Yeah. 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 Well, wonderful. Well, that is great information to hear, and uh, I'm so I'm so glad that we had you on the show to hear what was going on. Was there anything else that you wanted to share with our listeners that's going on? Well, um, I, I think I've uh, I've uh, communicated the uh, the urgency that uh, I think we all have uh, uh, in trying to address this illness. It uh, again, anyone with a personal experience uh, knows how devastating it can be, and um, uh, our, our baby boomers are, you know, the 2011, the first of our baby boomers turned 65, so it's it's really going to uh, uh, increase the number of people who reach the age at which uh, Alzheimer's disease is, is bound to occur. It's estimated that one out of every eight baby boomers will develop the disease. So we must do, we must, must make this a priority for our national research to try to halt this illness. Well, I agree. You know, I thought of one other question, if you don't mind. Um, you know, I'm talking with some people in terms of trials. I've, I've heard, and I don't know if this is accurate or not, but a lot of them target the older adults with um, memory loss. Is that true? Because I know so many younger people are like, oh, I, I, you know, I couldn't get in on that trial because I'm not old enough. And and you know they're really kind of like you know what about us? But maybe maybe I'm wrong on that, and maybe the information I'm hearing is wrong. Or do you see that trials really kind of spread the age range? Because with the early diagnosis, you know we are seeing more and more people with young onset. So uh, so I think you you are correct. I think uh, the trials in general have. Um, uh, been developed for the uh, most common form of the Ill, of the illness, which uh, affects people at most typically who are 65 or even 70 years of age and older. So I think you're right. Most trials have been conducted in older adults, but there are a number of initiatives underway to extend trials to younger individuals. So uh, in the past, it's been uh, older individuals. Uh, I, I think we'll see. Uh, trials of, of uh, uh, that incorporate and include younger people in years to come. Wonderful, wonderful. That's that's great news because I know a lot of young onset have just felt a little frustrated in terms of qualifying. They're like, I I've got longer to live with this than, than they do, you know, type deal. And and um, don't forget about us um, has been some of the some of the comments that I've heard. And I wasn't sure because I, you know, you can only have your pulse on so many things because there's so much happening in this industry that it's really hard to uh, to get to the heart of all of it, and that's one of the reasons I love doing this show is being able to hear from the, the people who are the experts and who are the professionals or who are living with the disease to, to hear their voice of what, what actually is going on, and I just feel like I'm kind of a conduit um, to try to get that information out to other people. So, again, I very much appreciate your time. Now, if people want to get a hold of you, my understanding um, was that they could call your assistant. Is that correct, um, Linda Kruger? And uh, I, I think it, it, it would uh, the number uh, that if people are interested in uh, in research is to mm -hmm. uh, contact this number. It'd be three one four two eight six two six eight three. That's our 
314-286-2683. That's our uh, memory and aging project, our research unit. But oh, okay. I, I think for general information, I would, again, I'd uh, certainly, uh, I think the National Alzheimer Association is uh, has a, just a, a really fantastic uh, uh, set of resources for information about the disease, about caring for the disease, and, and I would encourage people to, to call either the National Alzheimer's Association or if they know their local chapter to, uh, to go there as well. Sure, and the, the national number is 800-272-3900. That's 800-272-3900. And that's a 24-7 hotline, and they will also be able to hook you up with your, your local um, association as well. well so you I have think, a very good memory. No, I just popped it up on the... <laughs> That's, that's the wonder of computers. I just I just punched it into the the search bar and pulled it up. So I remember no numbers these days. Everything's loaded in my phone, you know. So, but um, well, I thank you so much for being on the show. Well, today. thank this thank you for having me. I appreciate it, and uh, thank you for uh, the work that you do. Well, good. Well, you have a wonderful day and weekend, and um, maybe we, our paths will cross again in the future. Thank you again so much right, for your bye. time, Dr. Martin. Bye-bye. Bye now. I want to, uh, again, extend my thanks to Dr. Morris for all his uh, wonderful time and information that he shared with us today. And I'd like to ask our listeners, if you enjoyed the show, if you can help us spread the word by liking us. Uh, there's a little like book that will push it out to Facebook. And if you're a tweeter, you can go ahead and tweet the show, or you can email it to others. Um, feel free to do that. You can download it. There's all kinds of options there. But you know, I look at us as a collaboration working together to share information regarding Alzheimer's and dementia and we'd love to have you on our team. For our upcoming shows here, I will be interviewing, let's see, on March 9th, I can't believe we're in March already, Catherine Pears and Mary Hogan, and they're going to talk about um, dementia in the intellectually disabled. It's something that's not spoken about a lot, but it's, it's very, very common. And then on, it looks like March 15th, uh, I'm going to be having somebody on regarding genetics and Alzheimer's disease and kind of that evolving landscape. And on March 22nd, you're going to want to listen in on that show because um, I'm going to have Charles Robertson on, and he is with uh, Dankin Brain Fitness, and he's actually going to give away a free brain fitness program on that show. On the 26th, Rick Roman is going to be on, and he... And um, Gina Paras have written this beautiful song and done this just a really nice music video called um, Hiding in the Rain that is very, very powerful. And then we're going to also have Janie Jason on. And she's a close personal friend of mine who is a speaker and a trainer, but who has been on the path of dementia with, her, with both of her parents. And so she's got a very unique story to tell. And coming up in April, we're going to have Steve on, who is actually living with the disease. Uh, Steve is only in his 50s and has been um, diagnosed with early onset 
And then April 6th, we're going to have Naomi File on, and she is just a powerhouse of a woman. I'm very excited to have her on the show. She's actually coming to Minnesota to celebrate her birthday and 30 years of her validation program, which has really been a struggle um, pushing out, and it has really come into its own in the in the past few years, and she has such a a wonderful presence, um, beautiful message, and is just internationally acclaimed. So uh, hopefully you will be joining with us. And then Kathy Borey will be on on the 12th, and um, I believe Lynn Buckley is going to be coming on too regarding the adult day services. We needed to change that due to some scheduling problems. So we've got lots of great programming coming up. Again, if you think you might have a story to share, um, please get a hold of me because I'm always looking for guests and that can be uh, somebody who has early memory loss, if you're a family caregiver, if you um, have an, a unique business um, or service or product that you think will help people with dementia, I would love to hear from you. Or if you just have a concept and an idea and you want to do some, uh, some um, brainstorming, please give me a jingle. As always, I want you to keep in mind to focus on the three simple things that you can do to make life with dementia easier when you're caring for someone, and that is your memory chip. Focus on are they safe, are they happy, and are they pain-free? And you can get your free memory chip at alzheimerspeaks.com. Thank you again for listening, and have a blessed day. We'll talk to you all soon. Hi everyone, this is Meredith from the Senior Fitness with Meredith podcast, where I discuss all things for seniors. From fitness, your health and wellness journeys, how to be all over strong and beyond. I also have my mini podcast called Motivation with Meredith. It's a great, quick, motivational pick-me-up for your days. Join me, listen now, search for Senior Fitness with Meredith on your favorite podcast platform.